I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We've been talking for the last several weeks on the seven letters that uh, Jesus gave to John to deliver while he was on the, uh, in exile on the Isle of Patmos. We've gotten to the church in Pergamum. We'll start in verse 12. Let me just go ahead and read. It's the longest of the seven letters. It's a whole, 12, uh, it's a whole seven verses. I'm sorry, my math's not good. It's five verses. So let's start in verse 12. And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornications. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, we're not going to take the time this morning to go through all the things that we told you about the city of Pergamum, but suffice it to say that it was one of the most beautiful cities. It was designed to be the Athens of Asia. Uh, it was uh, a city that was in uh, continual rivalry with Ephesus to be the, the major, um, well, the place where everybody wants to be, I guess. And, uh, and it, it was certainly in the running for one of the most, if not the most, wicked cities in all of the ancient world. It had as many temples to false idols and false gods as any uh, on record, with the possible exception of Athens itself. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a city that was overrun with pagan worship, idol worship and uh, the worship of false gods. And, and let, me, let me say again, and, and we've made this point several times, but I think it's important for you to get a hold of. Idol worship is kind of foreign to our way of thinking. Uh, we worship idols like money and, and stuff like that. We don't have temples that we go to to offer sacrifices to false gods. So... The concept of idol worship is a little strange or foreign to us. But nearly everybody in the ancient world worshipped a multitude of gods. You were offering sacrifices, and they weren't big sacrifices necessarily, but you're doing something, some little thing to a multitude of gods nearly every day of your life. Most of the economy revolved around idol worship as well because there were uh, trade guilds and, and... uh, unions, if you will, they didn't use that term, but we can relate to that a little better. Unions, uh, trade unions, that if you weren't um, a part of the group, then your economic abilities were severely limited and your opportunities were limited. And so for the Christians, let's say if a Christian was a carpenter or a silversmith or something like that, he was a tradesman, if he got saved and quit going to the uh, to the trade union meetings 
because of the idol worship and everything revolved around worshiping different gods and and um, uh, the god of silversmiths and the god of carpenters and the god of whoever. Uh, if you as a Christian quit going to that, then you are pretty much uh, X'd out of the opportunity in the city to to make a living. And so it was a financial hardship. I know a lot of times in our present world, people put the economy first and their economic well-being first above character and above principle and so forth. But that wasn't... Um, uh, that was a big dividing line for the church, the early days of the church. Pergamos was a place where uh, imperial worship was headquartered. It was a place where imperial worship began. And by that, what I mean is the worship of Caesar. <clears throat> now, let me clarify that. It was a common practice for Caesars, Caesars to be deified and to be uh, looked at as gods after they died. But it was in Pergamum that they first started the idea of worshiping a living Caesar. Well, that flattered the Caesar, and so it became the pattern from their own. Uh, Pergamum had three temples standing at one time uh, worshiping Caesars. And it became the requirement for every Roman citizen to go one time a year to the temple to honor Caesar. Domitian was the Caesar of this point in time, and to offer an incense, a sacrifice of incense unto him, and to declare that Caesar is Lord. And as as a result, you received a, a certificate proving that you have done your duty and, and you're a true Roman citizen, faithful to the state and so forth by worshiping Caesar. Well, that was a problem for the Christians because Christianity not only requires you to turn your back on worship of false gods or other gods, but to to refuse to declare that Caesar is Lord because you believe Jesus is Lord puts your life in danger. Well, because of that, there were, because of that and many other reasons, <coughs> there was great persecution taking place in Pergamum. Pergamum and Pergamus are uh, interchangeable terms. Both are correct for the name of the city. And um, that persecution had culminated in Antipas, martyrdom. And we talked a little bit about this, talked a lot about it last, uh, last Sunday morning, I believe. But this morning I want to move a little bit beyond that to make mention of a couple of things that Jesus refers to them, uh, refers to the church about uh, having something against them and holding something against them. And I'll start again in verse uh, 14. Revelation chapter 2. It says, But I have a few things against thee. Now, the King James is really poor in this translation because it makes it seem like Jesus is saying another couple of minor points. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, I have some things against you. And the things against them that he relates to them, same thing he said to the church at Ephesus a few verses before in this same chapter, are things that he hates. Folks, things God hates are not little things. So don't get sucked in by the wording of the translation and think that he's saying, well, there's just a few minor points. These are not minor points. I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Now, the doctrine of Balaam is referred to three times in the New Testament. Uh, You remember the story of Balaam? 
we won't take time to go back and read it. It's uh, Numbers 23, 24, and 25 primarily that tells us about Balaam. We know a little bit about Balaam in the sense that uh, he spoke some things and used, was used of God to say some things. For example, Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 is a verse of scripture you might be familiar with. Balaam said, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he not spoken it and shall he not make it good? Has he not said it and shall he not bring it to pass? Well, Balaam said that, but Balaam was not a prophet of God. Balaam was a prophet to one of these or many of these false idols. But there were times where God would speak to him, not for the sake of delivering a message to his people, but to show him the difference between the real and the false. There were... Uh, there was an occasion where Balak, who was the king of Moab, was seeking after Balaam to gain favor with the people. He wanted Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel. And it was uh, on the heels of that that Balaam said something else that we know of in the scripture. And he said, who can curse whom God is blessed? Well, that's a false, a pagan prophet, a prophet, well, I think it would be safe to say a false prophet to a false God. Who said that? Now, what he said was true. What he said in Numbers twenty-three nineteen about God not being a man that he should lie and repent and so forth. That was true. These are things that God revealed to him to show him the difference between that which was false and that which was true. Well, Balak, the king of Moab, wanted to defeat the children of Israel. And so he offered Balaam money to curse the children of Israel. And and Balaam basically said, well, I can't do that. The blessing of God is upon them. Now think about this. Here's a false prophet to false gods saying, I know God has favored these people. Now, does God care more about his Old Testament people than his New Testament people? Then should even unbelievers... Shouldn't even unbelievers nowadays see the favor of God upon the church? Just like false prophets saw the favor of God upon Israel in the old days? I believe so. Well, when Balaam told Balak, king of Moab, I can't curse him. Wouldn't do any good. You can't curse him. God is blessed. It'd be a waste of time. Now, I don't know why he didn't just take the money and say, yeah, I'm curses upon you, you know. A lot of what they did was fake anyway. I'm not exactly sure why that didn't work in this case. But Balaam said this. He said, I can't curse them because the blessing of God is upon them. But do this. He said, send women in among the men to seduce them. And they'll turn their hearts away from God. Get them to worship false idols, false gods. And then that will bring a curse. Their own action of turning away from God will bring a curse upon them and God will be against them. Great guy, huh? Now let me read to you from uh, Numbers chapter 25. Uh, Hold on a second, let me pull it up. Numbers chapter 25 and verse 1, 1 through 3. This tells us what uh, um, the end result of Balaam's advice to Balak, the king of Moab, was. And Israel abode in Shittim, 
And the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, I want to read this to you from a different translation because to us, thinking from a Western mentality where idol worship is not a real big deal, it's not a part of our, our history or our heritage, we disassociate sexual activity from worshiping other gods. But you have to remember that in the pagan world, those were one and the same things. Because most of the worship of these false gods involved sexual activity. There were temple prostitutes, both men and women, that would provide you with whatever you needed to worship this false god, whoever he or she might be. So let me read this to you from a different translation to show you what's going on. Now, the reason for this is I assume everybody thinks the same way that I do. That's probably a mistake. But nevertheless, I think of of the instruction that Balaam gave to Balak as something that takes a long time to bring about. Have the women seduce the men, and then as the uh, the men get hooked up with the wrong women, then eventually they'll turn them to their gods. But that's not what's happening. It was an immediate thing. Let me read this to you from the message translation. When Israel was camped at uh, the Acacia Grove, the men began to have sex with the Moabite women. It started when the women invited the men to their sex and religion worship. They ate together and then worshiped their gods. Israel ended up joining in the worship of Baal of Peor. God was furious, his anger blazing out against Israel. I believe that gives a little bit better understanding of what was going on and what Balaam did. Now remember, here's Jesus appearing with eyes flames of fire and hair white like wool and his feet like it's burning, like his brass burning in a fire, speaking to the church, literally the pastor of the church, saying, here's my problem with you. I know that you haven't denied my faith. I know that you have held fast to my name, but here's my problem with you. You haven't done something about those that are following the Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam. Now, what is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, the doctrine of Balaam, very simply, you don't have to worship God exclusively. You can serve whatever appetites of the flesh you want to, and everything will be all right. Now, let me go on to the next verse in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 15, I believe it is. It says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So he says there's two wrong doctrines. There's two false doctrines that are influencing the people in the church. And his problem is that the church hadn't done anything about it. Specifically the pastor. The letter is to the pastor, not just the church. The letter is to the pastor on behalf of the church. So he says, here's one of the things I've got against you. You haven't done anything about those that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And you haven't done anything about those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He said, you better do something about it or else I'll come quickly and fight against them. Notice he didn't say, I'll fight against you, the pastor. He didn't say, I'll fight against them, the church. He says, I'll fight against them, the ones that hold the wrong doctrine. Now, before we go any further, let me remind you of what he said to the Ephesians about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In... in, uh, Revelation chapter 2, 
uh, verse 6, it says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In other words, he's commending the church at Ephesus. You hate what I hate in this regard. You hate the deeds, not the doctrine. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and I do too. But to the church at Pergamos, he's saying, You've got those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, what is the Nicolaitans? What is the Nicolaitan doctrine? Well, in Acts chapter 6, now I'm going to turn back and read this. You don't have to if you don't want to. But in Acts chapter 6, it tells us about how when the church began to grow and there arose a murmuring in the church because the Grecians, uh, uh, the Gentile widows were being neglected in the daily activities of the church and so forth. And so the 12 called the multitude and said, okay, here's what we want to do. We want you to choose out seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and of wisdom that we may appoint over this business. And the Bible tells us who those seven people are. Verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now there's one of these seven names that's a Gentile name and not a Jewish name, and that's the name Nicholas. Uh, early church historians, early church fathers, Irenaeus and Hippolytus both identify in their records, their historical records, that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans proceeded from, originated with, this Nicholas who was one of the original seven deacons in the church of Jerusalem. Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was very simply this. And, and in fact, the, the, um, in my thinking, you can judge this for yourself. But in my thinking, the reason that Jesus joined together the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is because they come at it from a little different angle, but they both end up at the same place. And that is, you don't have to separate yourself from the world to be, with, to, to be joined, with and, uh, joined with Jesus and part of the family of God. In other words, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was pretty much the same as the doctrine of Balaam, and that was, you can do anything you want to. Anything goes. We don't want to offend anybody. We want to be tolerant of anything and everything. Now, what do we know about Nicholas? Well, the Bible tells us a little bit about him in just a short phrase where it mentions his name. It says he was a proselyte of Antioch. Now, what does that mean? That means he came from a pagan culture. He converted to Judaism, and then he converted to Christianity. Now, you decide for yourself whether or not that implies that he's willing to take on any new thing that comes along. But regardless, to come to the place where he says that you don't have to separate yourself, and remember, this is the real pressure that's upon the church, the early church, is the the pressure comes from separating themselves. As I explained a little bit earlier, they're under tremendous economic pressure if they separate themselves from their trade unions. Or trade guilds. They're under tremendous political pressure to just say Caesar is Lord. And there's a lot of uh, historical documents, historical evidence that indicate that many, many Christians, when they were faced with the, the um, faced with martyrdom, would rec- would recant their faith in Jesus and say Caesar is Lord, and that's all they had to do. If they would just simply say, it didn't matter if they meant it, it didn't matter. None of this was a judgment of the heart. This was simply a matter of 
if you will obey what the, what the Caesar has commanded to do, commanded for you to do, and that is to declare that he is Lord, then we'll let you out of this. You can escape. We won't hurt you. We won't, you can go back to your, your life doing whatever it is you do. And there's a lot of evidence, historical documents in the early church writings that indicate that a lot of people did that. Now, of those that did that, some were welcomed back into the church after they repented and said, I, you know, it was just weak and I was afraid for my life and so I just said something and I wish I hadn't. Some of those were welcomed back into the church. Others, that was it. That was the end of their experience with the church. Maybe that was the end of their salvation. I'm not here to judge that and neither did the early church. It doesn't seem from the writings that we have. But that was the pressure. That was the the means of pressure. Now, folks, stop for a minute and, and, uh, and think about something. What's the church under pressure to do today? I'm not under any pressure to go worship Dionysus or Diana or Zeus or anybody like that. Are you? If so, we need to talk. But what is the church under pressure today? The church is under pressure today to be popular. The church is under pressure today not to be ostracized, both individually and and as a group, as a family. We're under pressure not to create offense with the world so that the world looks down upon us or wants to separate themselves from us. Now, this is one of the problems that I have with the teaching that these seven letters refer to different time periods of the church. Because I believe the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam has been in the church from early on. As a matter of fact, let me show you something. Turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read something to you from the NIV just because it's a little less King James language. Not a big difference, but a little bit. Now, let me make some comments before I read the verses that I want you to see. There was a time where Paul and Peter were at odds with one another. Paul writes, well, actually Luke writes, and then Paul refers to the event writing to the Galatians. But Luke writes in the book of Acts that um, at the time when the church headquarters had pretty much moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. And by that I mean the moving of the Holy Ghost that began and the miracles that began in Jerusalem seemed to be stifled by the, the Judaism that the, the early church in, in Jerusalem held on to after a number of years. And so the Holy Ghost, the move of the Holy Ghost that was intended for every church was really blowing and going in Antioch. It was the place where everybody wanted to be at that time. Well, Peter comes from Jerusalem, his home, to Antioch. And forgive me if I paraphrase this or kind of add my own thinking or imagination to this, but Peter looks around and says, wow, this is like it was in the early days with us. This is wonderful. Here's a moving of the Holy Ghost. There's healings taking place. There's manifestations of the Spirit in, in operating freely. 
This is wonderful. And so he's mixing and mingling with everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike. And then over a process of time, some period of time later, we don't know how long, but some period of time after Peter gets there and and enjoys fellowship in the church, eating with the Gentiles and fellowshipping with everybody as equals, there are others that were sent from James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, to Antioch to get a report of what's going on. And when these Jews that are representatives of James show up in town, Peter separates himself from the Gentiles and won't eat with them anymore. Again, this is my way of explaining it, but he stopped eating bacon. He went back to the dietary laws of of Israel. He went back to the separate attitude that Israel and the Jews had about the Gentiles that doesn't exist in the church. And he comported himself in such a way that even some of the church leaders were carried into the same action and the same behavior. Well, the Bible says because this happened publicly, Paul dealt with it publicly. Paul withstood Peter face to face. He embarrassed him in front of the whole church. He set things straight. Now, it doesn't tell us what the end result was. It only tells us that Peter, that Paul withstood Peter face to face and made his argument that Peter couldn't refute about his behavior and the change of his behavior when the Jews came from Jerusalem and so forth. You could well imagine at the very least that it would have hurt Peter's feelings and embarrassed him terribly. It doesn't tell us that Peter changed his behavior. It doesn't tell us that they patched things up and Peter repented and said, you know, gee, you're right. I shouldn't be influenced by these guys from Jerusalem. In fact, you guys from Jerusalem, let me explain how this is supposed to work. We don't have any record of any of that. We don't have any record of any relationship whatsoever between Peter and Paul. Even that they were in the same place at one time or at the same time until they were executed in 67 AD, about the same time in the same year, 67 AD, by Nero the emperor. And then their bones were moved to the catacombs of Rome and they were buried side by side. But notice something that Peter said. We don't know exactly when this was written, but it had to be written before 67 AD. Notice in Second Peter chapter 3, Peter, after having had that experience with Paul, notice what Peter says about Paul and Paul's ministry. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse uh, 15, I'm reading from the NIV. It says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. He's just been talking about the end of the world and the fervent heat of the world or the fervent heat of heaven burning up the world and so forth. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, folks, whatever feelings they had about each other and whatever hard uh, feelings they might have had at one time, Peter, inspired by the Holy Ghost, pays Paul one of the greatest compliments you can. He puts him on par with Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and any and all of the other prophets of the Lord that were used in the Old Covenant to deliver his word to his people. 
he says that Paul's letters stand equal with the other scriptures. He recognizes the value of Paul's ministry and the gift that God has placed upon him. Can you see that? Now notice the other thing about it, and that is by the time Peter and Paul are executed, or shortly before, assuming this was shortly before, this is the last letter Peter wrote, that much we know. So assuming this was shortly before his execution in 67 AD, by that point in time, Paul's letters have already been distorted by people and his teaching and the truth that he shared with the, with the church has already been twisted by people for their own purposes. Which explains a lot of the reason why Paul wrote some of the things that he did in the ways that he did. Now here's the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They said they're both antinomian doctrines, which means against the law. So they said, since Paul writes to us that since our old man is crucified and we're freed from sin, we're no longer debtors to the law, but we're alive unto Jesus Christ. Paul said, and you can turn back with me to Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6 because I'll, I'll pick out a couple of verses here. won't read much, but just a couple of verses real quick. Since Paul said that the righteousness of God has made us free from all the works of the flesh, we're no longer debtors to the flesh. And Paul even goes so far as to say the flesh isn't the real us. Paul concludes this saying, this teaching, by saying, Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Well, the grace of God is a good thing, isn't it? And where the grace of God abounds is where sin abounds. So since the flesh is not the real us anyway, we can do whatever we want to and have more grace on us. And that's the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It doesn't matter what you do. God loves you anyway. And hey, First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter what we do. Now Paul addresses this. Paul knows even at this point in time when he writes to the Romans. He knows this is not the deal. Notice in chapter 6. In verse 15 he says. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law? But under grace? God forbid. Now what you need to understand is Paul was extreme grace. And by that, what I mean is he was so solid, so strong on that the gift of God, the gift of righteousness does not come through any action of your own, but by the free gift of God through the shed blood of Jesus. There is no sin that's greater than the shed blood of Jesus to provide righteousness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how terrible you were. It doesn't matter how many times you did it. There's no sin that's greater than the blood of Jesus that provides the righteousness of God. But he was equally strong by saying, since we've been made righteous, rather than serving the law of the flesh, which is the law of sin, we should bring forth fruits that are appropriate for those that have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Now, the last part is what a lot of the people wanted to leave off. They wanted to just accept the idea that we've been made righteous, so it doesn't matter. What we do doesn't matter. Now, let's bring this into a modern-day context. 
there are, and always have been, pockets of people that are going to teach and twist the Word of God to support whatever they want to do in their own lives. Please understand that the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus hates, he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he hated then, he hates it now. This doctrine that he hates is not people that are falling into sin. That's what forgiveness is for. This is not people that are stumbling over their flesh, struggling to overcome it. This is a systematic teaching, method of teaching that was designed to do exactly what, Do- what Balaam's advice to Balak did, and that is pull people away from God into a position of cursing to influence people. By the way, the name Balaam and the word Nicolaitans mean exactly the same thing. One's Hebrew and one's uh, Greek. Mean exactly the same thing. You know what they mean? They mean to conquer the people. To conquer the people. Like I said, in my thinking, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam really are kind of two sides of the same coin. They come at it from a little different angle, from a little different reason. The doctrine of Balaam has uh, in it the motive, and Jude speaks about this, Jude verse 11 speaks about this, the error of Balaam. It has behind it the motive of financial gain, which is why Balaam gave Balak the advice that he did so he could make money off of it. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is that we don't want to offend the world. I mean, after all, how are we going to win them if we don't hang with them? How are we going to have an influence on them if we separate ourselves from them? The idea of being separate from the world can't mean in our daily lives because then we'd have nobody to witness to. That was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, you see the same thing in different different uh, areas or concerning different topics today. Gay marriage is one. Well, we don't want to come out too strong in gay marriage because we're not against anybody. Well, what are we against? I don't know about you, but I'm against sin. Because the Bible tells me to be. Yeah, but I don't want to offend anybody. Well, does that mean we don't tell them the truth? I mean, should we not tell the world that they're on their way to hell because they don't know Jesus? Because that might offend somebody? If so, how are they ever going to find out about Jesus? Because if we present Jesus as just something else to incorporate into your daily activities, which is what the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was doing, if that's the, the relationship we have with Jesus, what power in the, of the word of God or the power in the name of Jesus are they going to experience? Remember, this is exactly the situation that we see in Acts chapter 19 in the church at Ephesus. Jesus was just something else to worship until they saw the power in the name of Jesus greater than the power of the devil in the seven sons of Caesar incident. It says, when the people heard that, when they heard that the name of Jesus was magnified, the devil inside this guy, this demon-possessed guy said, Jesus, I know and Paul, I know, but who are you? When they realized that the name of Jesus was the greatest name that there is, that's when they accepted it. And not until then, that's when they accepted that what Paul was saying about Jesus being the only way to God was really right. And so what did they do? 
They separated themselves from the worship of these other pagan idols and gods. They brought their stuff, piled it up, and burned it. We can't use it after it's burned. They put themselves in a position in a public manner, facing economic persecution, facing political persecution. They put themselves in a public manner, on record, as saying, we are followers of the one true God through his son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when they did that, and only when they did that, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now, we sometimes say, I've been guilty of saying this. I've said many times, it's amazing to me that God's able to do with the church what he's able to get done as it is. And in many ways, we look at the church world and we say, well, if God intends for us to have authority, which he does, and if he intends for us to have the power of the name of Jesus, which he does, and in, he intends for us to use that power to our advantage to advance the things, the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus, then why doesn't the church have any more power than it does? Because in many ways, the church is, the modern-day church is like the church at Ephesus in Acts 19. Jesus is just something else we've incorporated into our lives. And many Christians, hope you're not part of this group, but many Christians are scheduling God his 10 minutes or his hour a week so that they can get on to the other things that they really want to do. And all the other things that they really want to do have to do with the pleasures of the flesh. The word of God will never prevail in your life until you make it first and foremost. Until you make a decision that God is the one that I'm pursuing and God alone. You're not going to see the power of God in your life. The church is not going to have the power of God in operation. And it's in my thinking, and again, you judge this for yourself. But in my thinking, that's why the last days is going to be a great divide. There's going to be a big portion, maybe the majority portion of the church that's not going to want to offend anybody, that's not going to want to take a stand that sets them at odds against people to be persecuted or spoken against or looked down upon or whatever. But there is going to be a segment, a remnant, if you will, of the church that says, I want all there is of God. Now, when the Bible talks about the glory of God being seen on the earth in the last days before Jesus returns, like the waters cover the sea, where do you think that glory is going to be seen? Is it going to be seen on Christians that say that God is just part of what I do with my life? Or is it going to be, part of, uh, is it going to be seen on the church, the, the segment of the church? And I hope it's a big segment. It's hard to hold out hope for that. But the will of the Lord be done. But it's going to be seen. In my estimation, it's going to be seen upon the church, the segment of the church that's turned away from everything else and makes God and God alone its purpose. That's what he has, what Jesus has against the church at Pergamos. He's saying, you haven't done that. Now, here's the question. What should they have done? Remember the letters to the pastor. He says, I've got a few things against you. 
You've got among you them that hold the doctrine. He didn't say them that are teaching the doctrine. Them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Repent. Now he's telling the pastor to repent. He's not telling the church to repent. He's telling the pastor to repent. There's something about what the pastor has not done. That's created the, the situation that Jesus has to address. What is that? Well, apparently the pastor is not strong enough to counteract the teaching of the doctrine of Balaam of the Nicolaitans. Apparently he's not saying what needs to be said to expose the error of these two doctrines. Now, if that was Jesus' concern in that day under great persecution, and you could well understand, I mean, people are losing their lives For their unwillingness to, to mix and mingle with false gods and idol worship and temple worship and seizure worship and all that other kind of stuff. It'd be real easy for a pastor to understand or be understanding and say, now, I want to encourage you to hold out to the end. I know it's tough. And I know there are those that are saying, if you'll just compromise, if you'll just say the seizure is Lord, And I'm sure people were saying, you don't even have to mean it. Just say it. As a matter of fact, in some of the the historical records and documents we've had of of people that were martyred, even the magistrates and the proconsuls, the governors of these provinces, weren't looking for a heartfelt confession. Just say the words. Just say the words. Just say Caesar is Lord. You can even whisper it if you want to. Just say it. Make it as easy on you as possible to escape harm and suffering. It'd be real easy to understand that position as a pastor, wouldn't it? It'd be real easy to understand that. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor Mike, this has happened since the beginning of the church. And as a matter of fact, it happened a lot in the beginning of the church when the church was in the babyhood stage and really needed the finances. But I've had people from the beginning of the church come to me and say, Pastor Mike, we can't afford to tithe. What should we do? Well, how do you answer that question? Oh, don't worry about the word. You know that thing about robbing God? That's Old Testament. What do you tell people? Now, I've been in a position, and many times uh, in the early days, I was in the same position as them. But actually, I couldn't afford to do it either. But what position do you take? It's easy to be understanding. It's easy to be easy on people. And say, well, just do what you can. Folks, God used a word that means tenth. He didn't use a word that means eighth. He didn't use a word that means sixteenth. He didn't use a word that means give what you can. He used a word for tithe that means tenth. Well, what do you think as far as God is concerned, tenth means? I'm pretty well convinced it means tenth. That's one of the reasons the Bible says in Matthew in Malachi 3, bring all the tithe. Because a lot of people want to separate it. A lot of people want to split it up. 
A lot of people want to split it up and not give a full tenth. A lot of people want to split it up and say, well, I'll give part of it over here, and I'll give part of it over here, and I'll give part of it over here. The Bible says bring all of it into the storehouse. Now, you decide for yourself what your storehouse is. But he's pretty clear on what to do with it. My only point is this. We as human beings feel the pain of other people's situations. But none of those situations change the word. And the word can't change your situation if you don't put it in practice. My response then is the same as my response now, and that is, I can't tell you what you're supposed to do. I just know this. I know that God's word's true. And as far as I'm concerned, I can't afford not to tithe. Now, what people do from that point on is up to them. I don't want to rail on them and say, well, you ugly thing, you. To even think about not paying your tithes. If you're not going to hell, at least you're not going to have a good seat in heaven. I mean, you know, what do you do? I remember one time that I was thinking about, the one time I'm thinking about, there was somebody that came to me in a situation like that, and I'm thinking, well, you got more than I do. I'm tithing. You get a lot more than I do. But you can't say things like that. You have to leave it between people for people to make the decision between themselves and God. But the word's true no matter what they decide. Well, folks, the word is true concerning being free from the law no matter how you live. A lot of people, and you see the same thing happening today, a lot of people have the idea that the grace of God means you don't really have to follow the word so strictly. That grace is pretty much permission to live a normal life. And what most Christians consider to be a normal life now is a sinful one. I knew you'd get excited about this message. (laughs) But it's true. It's true. Grace is not permission to do wrong. Grace is the power of God to do right. See, being free from the law doesn't mean I'm free to do whatever I want to do. For example, the law told me I was not to kill. That's the only thing I was required under the old old covenant was that I didn't kill you. But under the new covenant, I'm required to love you like I love myself. That's not less imposed upon me. That's more imposed upon me. under the old covenant, I couldn't have loved you as myself because I didn't have the love of God on the inside of me. Under the new covenant, she can. Jack Hayford wrote an article some, uh, oh, a couple of years back. You know who Jack Hayford is, don't you? Church on the way. Uh, he wrote an article a few years ago, and the name of the article is When Kingdom Rules Don't Apply. And in that article, he was writing about a situation that he was familiar with, and he didn't name any names, no reason to do that. He didn't name any names, but he said that there was a group of pastors at a function that he was attending. I don't know if it was one that that they came in to to his place or if he went somewhere else. I don't know. But anyway, he said there was a group of pastors that he was aware of that were having a discussion. And they came to the conclusion that it's impossible for a man to commit adultery. 
oh, if that were true. But here's these pastors, pastors, and that's a key word, that have come to the conclusion that it's impossible for a, for a man to commit adultery. Adultery is just a sin for women. You women got that now, right? And the reason for it, the, the, the reasoning behind it was that man was made in God's image. Man is the greatest of God's creation. And that men primarily are the ones that are used. I don't know if there's a, an exemption for a woman minister or not. But men are the ones that are primarily used in ministry to deliver the word of God and handle the things of the kingdom of God. So, therefore, since we're free in Christ, and and folks realize there's a lot of scriptures you can twist and turn in the Bible. Paul said that all things are lawful, but they're not expedient. Now, that doesn't mean that everything you do is pleasing to God. Everything you do or contemplate doing would be pleasing to God. He said all things are lawful, but not expedient. Well, you could take that word all and include a lot of things in there that you don't have any business doing. And say, well, it's lawful. And that's what Peter is talking about. And really the term that he uses, the phrase that's translated hard to understand, doesn't just mean hard to understand in the sense that we think, but means hard to accept the way that he said it. All things are lawful but not expedient is one of those verses. You can make that mean just about anything you want it to. You can justify just about any sin that you intended or wanted to do. Another thing Paul said was, uh, and remember in, in Acts 15 where it talks about the council at Jerusalem, how to handle the Gentile believers. The only thing that they commanded them not to do, forget circumcision, that's not a part of it anymore. But don't eat meat sacrificed to idols or things strangled or things with blood. That was really about the only only restriction and fornication, certainly. But those were the few restrictions that they placed on the Gentile believers. Now, why would they have to place those restrictions on the Gentile believers? Well, because eating things sacrificed to idols was a big part of the sexual worship uh, in the temples. For example, the, the worship of Dionysus. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's where you you drank wine and um, laced with drugs and stuff like that and gave yourself over to demon possession. Well, the, the culmination of the temple worship, the sexual rituals and all that kind of stuff, was that a, bl- uh, a bull was slaughtered. You had sex in the blood of the bull. And then the meat of the bull, you gorged yourself on the raw meat ripped it from the carcass, and gorged yourself on the raw meat. So when we think of things sacrificed to idols, it means something different in our thinking than it meant to them. It was a part of the ritualistic worship. Um, Historical records say of the, the worship of Dionysus that people would get so beside themselves, and that's how you know you really got in touch with Dionysus, the God, is when you got so out of your mind out of control. It tells stories of how women would go screaming through the hills, of Pergamum. And I should say that the worship of Dionysus was oftentimes mistaken for menopause. You'll get that later on. 
Women running three, screaming through the hills. Sorry, bad joke. I'll pay for that later. But things offered unto idols means a whole lot different for us, to us, than what it meant to them. We think of the, the, the sterile type of application where meats offered to idols were then sold to the marketplace and available for people to buy. And that certainly took place. But that was one of the things that the council of Jerusalem said, avoid meat offered to idols. But Paul said it didn't matter. Paul said an idol is not anything anyway, so sacrificing nothing doesn't mean anything. But then he said this. He said, but to avoid offending somebody else's conscience, here's the grace of God producing works of righteousness. He said, but to avoid offending somebody's conscience, I won't eat anything or drink anything that anybody is offended by. So he's not using his liberty as an occasion to serve the flesh. He's using his liberty directed by the law of love to provide edification and encouragement to people. That's what's wrong with some of the faith, with some of the grace teaching today. This group of pastors that uh, Dr. Hayford was talking about said that after talking to them and hearing their position, he didn't say much about trying to change their minds or influence them one way or the other. I would imagine that he saw that that wasn't going to happen, so maybe he didn't even try. I don't know. But he said of this, he said, they all agreed that this should not be taught openly. And here's why. Because the average believer is not mature enough to accept it. Now, folks, when you start making exceptions for yourself because of your calling to ministry or something that God has for you to do, you're on shaky ground. And that's what was happening with the the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam. People were wanting to make exceptions to the truth of the word for the political situation, for the economic situation, or because of what God has called them to do. And Jesus said, repent, or else I'll come quickly. Let me get it again. This is the instruction he said, verse 16, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I think I brought this out, or at least I mentioned it in uh, verse 12. These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. This word sharp is not really the word sharp. It's a, it's a great picture. It's a great illustration. Remember in, uh, in Pergamum, that was the, the proconsul, the, the governor, provincial governor's headquarters. And this governor had what was called in Roman terms the right of the sword. In other words, he had the power given to him by the Roman government to execute anybody that he deemed to be unworthy of, or either an enemy of the state or unworthy of living. There were certain guidelines I, I'm sure that he had to follow regarding that, but being a Christian made you an easy target. So where it says, where Jesus is saying, I'm the one that has the sharp two-edged sword, 
He's saying you may think you live in the place where your life is threatened and can be taken by man, but I'm the one that controls the final judgment. But this word sharp doesn't mean sharp like we would think, you know, honed steel. It means either an antiseptic or an astringent agent. In other words, it's a medicinal term. It's talking about something that you'd use in surgery. Literally what he's saying is the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of my mouth in this case will be used like a scalpel. Repent or else I'll come into thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is he saying he's going to do? He's saying I'll cut this cancer out of the church. Now that tells you a lot of what the pastor should have done. The pastor should have cut the cancer out himself. When he's saying repent, he's telling the pastor to repent, not the church. The church can only accept or be influenced by the doctrine the pastor allows. He's saying the pastor needs to do something. Here's something to fix. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. In the midst of some of the greatest persecution in the history of the world, Jesus said right doctrine is what counts. Right doctrine is what counts. Why? Because the devil works the same way today as he used to. That is, he wants to get you to take action by your own will that separates you from the blessings of God. So what does Jesus want removed? Anything that can remove you from close and personal fellowship. Why? Because he wants his power to reside on you and he wants his blessings to reside on you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. Father, what a privilege it is to know the truth, to live in a day where we can be taught and schooled in the knowledge of who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. Father, let us be as the church at Ephesus was after they separated themselves from the world. Let it be said of us, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Lord, we see the end time approaching. We see the same work of the enemy taking place in the earth today as was spoken of in times past. We see the same power to overcome in us that they had in them. The power of your word. Father, let us be a people that's not afraid of being separated from the world. A people that's not afraid of what people will think of us or say about us for standing up for the truth. I thank you, Father, for boldness for each and every one of us to stand for the truth, to speak the truth in love. And Father, I ask for the boldness that comes by setting forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders will be done in the name of the Holy Child, Jesus. Father, we pray more importantly than ever before, show us your glory. Show us your glory. We recognize that the glory of God will not be seen upon those who are casually committed. 
So we realize, Father, that the first step is ours. We commit ourselves to you in every way, in every aspect, to live for Jesus and to produce works of righteousness. Let our lives be a sign unto the world, Lord, a sign that brings the people under conviction because of our own right standing with you, a sign of peace with God because of our walk with you. Father, I pray that you would do a miracle in the people of this church, that you would take away from them that you would mute I know the devil's still in the world and he'll always be here until we go to heaven but that you would mute the desires of our flesh that it would become a shadow in light of the word of God and your power Father I thank you for strengthening us in the name of Jesus that we wouldn't be lukewarm Christians, but that we would be completely sold out, 100% committed. If the word says it, that settles it. Kind of Christians in every area of our lives. Father, we pray that the power of God would rest upon us as we walk according to your word. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that prayer, say amen. 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 You know, the more I read these letters to the churches, some things that apply to us, some things maybe not, some things were specific to them that aren't to us, but the more I read these things to the churches, the more impressed I am that Jesus holds us in his hand. That he walks among us. Oh, if our eyes were only opened and we could see beyond the natural realm, see beyond the veil of this flesh, to see what was really going on around us, to see the power that's available to us, the angels that are here to help us, and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ right in the middle of us to know our works like you knew theirs. He's here. He's present among us. He's present in our lives. And he holds us in his hand. That comforts me. Because there's a lot of things I don't know what to do. But he does. And if he's holding us in his hand, then that means he cares about the things that we don't know what to do. He'll show us. He'll guide us. He'll see us through. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. Thank you for being part of our family. We love you.